1: Hello and welcome. I'm Joe Neal. I edit health and health policy at National Public Radio in Washington. And I'll be your moderator today for our discussion on child care and health in America. A few details to start with. This event is presented in in collaboration with the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and NPR. Both the forum and NPR are live streaming this event on their respective websites. The forum is also streaming this on their Facebook page. We're going to have a wide-ranging discussion today of child care and health. And I hope it will be as informative uh, to the parents who are watching, who face many of the challenges in child care that exist, uh, cost, affordability, quality, uh, and also to the policymakers and other people who work in the field of childhood development who may be watching. Uh, I'm going to get started with some introductions. Uh, To my immediate right is Jillian Steelfisher. Jillian is senior research scientist and deputy director of the Harvard Opinion Research Program at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Uh, To her right is Susan Hibbard. Uh, She's the executive director of the BUILD initiative, which we'll be hearing a little bit more about later. On her right is Kristen Schubert, managing director at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And joining us remotely is Rachel Schumacher. She's director of the Office of Child Care at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services in Washington. Uh, the program will include a brief question and answer period near the end, and you can email your questions to the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. You can also participate in a live chat that's going on right now at the forum website. During our conversation today, as I mentioned earlier, three words are going to be mentioned many times cost, quality, and affordability. Uh, we will try to sort out what those words mean from various perspectives of our panelists. And I want to first turn to Jillian. Um, Jillian, the reason we're here today is uh, we just, NPR, the foundation, and Harvard have just released a poll on child care and health in America, and you know all about that. Give us some of the highlights.
2: Well, thank you so much. It's great to be here today with uh, colleagues and others. Um, so this poll is a nationally representative snapshot of more than 1,100 parents across the country who have a child age five or under who's in child care. And what I mean by child care is any kind of uh, care from someone other than a parent um, that is regular. So that could be um, another relative. It could be a nanny or a babysitter. It could be an in-home um, childcare center. Or it could be a preschool. Um, We tried to capture the full spectrum of experiences from parents so we could give voice to um, their day-to-day experiences, both in terms of the challenges of finding uh, affordable, high-quality childcare and also the benefits that that brings to them. So let me share with you a couple of the key findings from that poll, um, and I'm going to start with a couple of slides um, and start off with the the first of, of those three topics, which relates to quality. And I'm going to start by saying that the results of the poll really show there may be a gap between what parents see in terms of the quality of their childcare and what expert assessments have been about the state of childcare in the United States today. Um, so, here I'm going to show you some data from the poll, um, tell you what parents are saying. And um, uh, in this particular question, we asked parents to rate the quality of the childcare that their child receives. And we said, you know, tell us what it's like from excellent to poor. And what we see is that a majority, a full 59%, say excellent. That's the highest rating that can be. Now, we asked them about other particular features of childcare that um, might contribute to quality. We asked about things like safety, the experience and training of the providers, um, preparation for later schooling, physical education. um, And again, large shares of parents are saying excellent. Now, this is a pretty rosy picture and may seem like good news at first. Um, but when we contrast this finding with the um, uh, other kinds of reports about the state of child care, we see there may be a gap that parents are um, rating this as very high quality, but some of the expert assessments would suggest that, in fact, the state of um, child, uh, child care today is not high quality. So for example, one of the seminal reports from the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development suggests that the grass majority of child care is um, more in the sort of fair um, uh, uh, realm.
1: Something um, on the order of about how much?
2: Uh, sort of the, the vast majority. The vast it, majority. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sort of in contrast to what we see in this poll. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, this suggests that there may be a disconnect between what parents see, and they may not have all the information. They may not know um, all the different aspects that an expert would have. And um, They may benefit from some of that information. So we've talked about the first of your, of your three, mm-hmm. quality. Okay, so now let's go to cost. Um, and here, what we see is another highlight from the poll, where you can see that parents are really feeling the cost pinch. So, in this um, slide, we show the parents who are paying a fee for childcare. We said, you know, um, uh, for uh, which of you does the um, does the cost of childcare present a financial problem for your for your family? And we see that a third, about thirty-one percent, um, say that it presents a problem for them. That's a pretty large share. Um, but what makes it more poignant is when we actually focused on people who said their financial situation was already strained, um, that it was uh, not really as strong, that now we have a majority, 61%, saying that it's presenting a financial challenge for them. That's a really large percentage. So third point, we've now talked about quality and cost. Let's talk about access. Um, so what we see in, um, uh, to the next slide, is that um, a majority of parents say that they face limited childcare options. They may have only a few or just even one realistic option for care. Um, and um, again, we see sort of begin to see in this part of the, of the findings that these three issues are really interrelated. Um, that is that, again, these, these share of parents who are feeling more financial strain, um, they're also the ones who are more likely to say that they don't have as many options. So these three factors are kind of coming together. And when it yeah. says
1: only, uh, people only have one option, typically that would be what? Do we know?
2: We don't know necessarily what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point is that for them, they have this very limited resource. Mm-hmm. Um, and they need it. And I think that's a great segue into the kind of final point that I'll, that I'll share from the poll, which is that um, this, um, the child care is actually incredibly important for parents. And it provides them great benefit. Now we just said that you know they, they say that the quality of their child care is um, excellent, so probably not surprising that they think it benefits their child. Um, what may not be as obvious from the beginning is that it actually benefits them as well. And we so have let's another slide. The next slide. slide. Last one. So um, parents believe that their that the child care is good for their families on an array um, of characteristics, um, and it's not just their job. Although we see that more than forty percent say it is. A um, uh, benefit for their job. It's not just their job, um, it's also their overall well-being and perhaps most importantly their relationship with their child. So this is kind of a, a dimension that maybe not is talked about as much from the perspective of childcare. Right. So pulling this together we see that you know cost, quality, and access are key issues. Um, uh, they may not be where they need to be today and yet this is a resource that is so critical for families.
1: I should just say that we've started a series of reports on NPR on the radio and online that we'll be rolling out over the next several weeks, looking at each specific issue that Jillian's talked about and other things that the poll revealed that we'll also be talking about here. Um, uh, But I want to go on next to to a video clip that we have from a 2015 documentary called The Raising of America, Early Childhood, and the Future of Our Nation. Um, And we chose it because it documents how parents can find themselves in such a tough spot, like Jillian was talking about, trying to balance the care of their children and the other demands on them. Um, And I should note that in addition to to the story of one family uh, that's presented here, uh, the family is Erica Burks Cummings and Leroy Campbell, Uh, we'll also be hearing from a pediatrician, uh, Renee Boynton Jarrett at Boston Medical Center, if we could have that clip. 40
3: hours a week. Leroy works sometimes 60 hours a week. He works a split shift, so like two in the afternoon to about when I'm done. one, two in the morning. Leroy is a driver and mechanic, Erica a nurse. Combined, they work more than 100 hours a week. In fact, Americans work more hours annually than most all of our peer nations. In today's day, we all gotta work. And there's, I can't remember back in life, my grandfather's days you know, the men work, the ladies, the women stay home and take care of the house and you know, family thing like that. In today's day, it surely can't happen. Everybody gotta go and work, and you know, what I'm saying, bring it in. A growing percentage of Americans work unreliable, precarious schedules, which can change from week to week depending on employers' demands. Yeah, yeah and that's, I mean, that's something that we have to work. I on. do rotating nights, so I'm on nice this week and so the next week though I'll be on days. So it kind of balances out that way.
0: Parents are juggling, shifting, trying to balance a variety of competing demands that they just don't seem like they're easy or reasonable solutions. It leads to a level of tension and stress. Is this what we've decided as a society? That this degree of tension, these complex trade-offs are the norm, to be expected, just a part of raising a child.
1: Rachel Schumacher, I want to turn to you now. Uh, That clip showed the juggling juggling act that many parents need to do every day and every week. Talk, if you would, for a a few minutes about the many challenges parents are facing in trying to secure the health and the child care their children need.
4: Sure. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me here today. Uh, I think that this clip and this survey show something that uh, really shows the incredible shift in America, that we are starting to recognize that child care is essential really for two generations. It's not just a work support, um, although it's desperately needed uh, it really promotes child development and these parents in this survey are recognizing how important uh, that experience is for their children's future their school readiness and their and their development for the rest of their lives um, they're right research has shown for over a decade how important child care is to um, really promoting those early trusting relationships that help children learn help children trust and learn how to work in a group, um, learn how to be successful in life and persist in challenges. And at the same time, the parents are, as you said, very stretched. They have a hard time finding uh, what they can afford. The average uh, cost of care in this country for an infant is it actually rivals the cost of uh, a year at a public uh, college for a year of college education. And that's something that a lot of parents aren't prepared for when they do have their first child. They are surprised to find out that they need to get on a waiting list to find that child care that they really want um, down the street, that it might take longer than they have as leave to be able to get into that program and that it's going to eat up a huge chunk of their take-home pay. And that's something a lot of young families are not prepared for. Um, At the same time, we know that the folks that are actually providing the care, the teachers and the caregivers, um, are not making very high wages. In fact, in every state in this country, according to some analysis we have done, those, uh, the median take-home salary, the median income for these folks uh, would make them eligible for the SNAP program, which is the food stamps program, in every state in this country. And yet these folks are charged with really helping, um, helping educate young children, supporting parents. I love that the survey showed how much parents appreciate that connection they have with their child care provider. These folks are doing incredible work, uh, and they need the skills and the qualifications to do it and the salaries, and they're currently not getting it yet in this country.
1: And talk for a moment, if you would, about why uh, the quality of child care is so important.
4: Oh, yes, that's a great question. Um, When children experience this Um, early learning environments. They're in care, on average for working parents, 35 hours a week. So we often think about learning and preschool and starting at the K to 12 age, but that's not true. Early childhood brain development in the first three years lays a foundation for what these children are going to be able to uh, do, their attitudes toward learning their ability to form a trusting relationship. They need continuity with that caregiver. They need that caregiver to provide a lot of language and stimulation and help them understand their feelings. If that's not going on in that early environment, it really is a missed opportunity for these young children that will affect them um, as they go forward in their school and later on in the rest of their working career.
1: And of course, it also reverberates through the family too, as the poll showed. Uh, parents benefit from childcare and high-quality childcare too.
4: Oh, absolutely! Um, I think that's one of the things I was particularly struck by in looking at the survey results, is that. Um, A really high-quality caregiver is partnering with those parents. They're talking to them about what they're seeing at home and telling them what they're seeing um, in the caregiving situation. They're puzzling through how to help with stranger anxiety and how to help the child you know, learn uh, how to deal with new situations and how to get along with their peers. And those uh, exchanges are incredibly important for young parents um, to get, especially first-time parents, if they have that partnership, they can really um, be shored up in their own work and feel confident when they go on to their work or education, whatever it is they need to do, that their child is in a safe environment, that they're getting the stimulation that they need to learn, and, um, and that they really can come back and know that that child will be happy to see them, but also have a really wonderful learning experience in their childcare setting.
1: Thank you. Um, all, of, all of that, of course, speaks to uh, quality, which we're going to continue talking about here. Uh, a lot today. Let me turn now to Susan Hibbard. Uh, You had an organization called the BUILD Initiative uh, that helps state leaders uh, develop early childhood systems. Um, As a part of that, you're helping states and others develop quality rating systems. I'd like to hear more about that. Um, But first off, can you tell us what people in the field mean uh, when they talk about high quality, and tell us how that might be changing?
5: Sure. Um, I, too, thank you for having me here, and just great points that people have raised. The definition of quality has really changed over time, especially when you think about what I'm going to address, quality rating and improvement systems. When people started looking at the level of quality in childcare, they were really looking at a disconnect between the licensing requirements and what they knew to be safe, healthy, nurturing environments for children, for young children. And so quality rating improvement systems and the focus on quality were raising the floor. Um. Now, when we talk about quality in a childcare setting, our expectations for that setting are much, much higher. As Rachel talked about, we're talking about the development of relationships and attachment between the adult and the child. We're talking about play and play as learning and really intentionally organizing the day so that the child can explore their interests, expand their language gain uh, confidence, gain in peer relationships. It's a much more demanding uh, set of criteria for quality. And quality rating and improvement systems are really sort of a constantly changing, but still in their infancy, set of strategies that are looking at defining quality, measuring it, helping to communicate with family members and with Uh, The the folks who pay, which could be the private payers, could be the accountability to the government, communicating what quality is and then improving that quality. And in many ways, it's a uh, continuous quality improvement set of strategies so that you reach a level of one or two stars, and it's defined what it would take to get to a higher level of quality. Um, it's a strategy that's emerged with enormous potential. Each of the QRIS in the country, and now there are uh, QRIS in 49 states and many of the territories, and, and now. It's QRIS? Quality Rating and Improvement Systems. Okay, thank we you. like the I the most, but some people focus on the R, the rating. Um, all QRIS have tiered quality standards. And uh, ratings that go with those standards, so that you know, a one star, a two star, or whatever the symbol is, each one has a higher set of standards, and then supports for quality improvement, a communication mechanism, and then some kind of financing. But after that, states really differ in what a QRIS um, is or can do, and initially. Communication was the idea, sort of related to the poll, that if a parent saw that this was a higher quality center by the rating, the parent would choose that center. So it was a way of educating the parent, creating demand for quality, giving an incentive because of the increased demand for the programs to increase their quality. So it was sort of a win-win communication mechanism. Well. That's a great idea, and it's beautiful to communicate like that about the idea of QRIS. But as Gillian pointed out, so many parents don't have multiple options. And the options in the community or that are affordable may not be of high quality. And I think it's human nature that we all need to feel that our children are in a good setting when we go off to work or we wouldn't be able to survive the day. So there's just a level of human nature kicking in there. Um, so now I think QRIS are sort of at a stage of recognizing that they're a push to help keep promoting quality. Um, the, the field recognizes that cost, availability, and location are going to keep being key issues, especially when transportation is such a challenge for poor families, um, and that. Therefore, we need to invest in the quality and increase the number of quality programs, not just communicate which ones are quality, but actually create quality so that all families with young children can have that positive experience and know that the children really are not just safe, but that their brain development is engaged, that those first 1,000 days are being put to good use and the child is able, able to just naturally expand their curiosity and learning.
1: Um, I have one question that I don't want to put anyone on the spot right now but I want you to be thinking about it because when we have the question and answer session later I I will raise it again it's 2016 why are we only now thinking or getting started with quality rating systems that parents can use. It, we have quality ratings for just about everything else in our life, including restaurants and et cetera. So why can't we get something more basic than this? But I'll come back to that in there. The Q&A, I want to go next, though, to uh, Kristen Schubert of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Uh, to put this in a, a broader societal perspective, uh, the foundation for several years now has been talking about a culture of health emphasizing this idea that it's not just health care, it's a whole societal effort to improve health. Uh, Help us understand, if you would, how these poll findings are fitting into the bigger picture.
6: Yeah, I'm happy to, Joe. I'll go into your question for a second, though. Oh, sure. I think Renee uh, Boynton-Jarrett said it best. Is this what we've decided is the best we can do for our children in this country? So I'd love to pick that back up with you. I'm so pleased to be here, this is a, a critical issue um, for us as a health and health care foundation and for our society. Um, I am very blessed. I get to work for an amazing organization, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Our vision is to build a culture of health for everyone living here. And really central to that is ensuring that all of our children get off on the best foot possible. Um, I'm also, though, blessed because I have an amazing family. And I'm telling you this because um, I remember too well, um, about nine years ago when I was having my first child, I was ready to go back to work. And Rachel, I was unprepared for sure. I really struggled to find him the right care. We bounced around from a neighborhood setting, then I pulled him out of that and we did some in-home care. That didn't work out, and we finally landed on a, on a center-based uh, setting for him. That year was enormously stressful. Um, and I was a um, really well-resourced person, and I was able to piece it together. I worked for a great place that allowed me the flexibility to manage through all of that, and I had an incredible family who could see me through those ups and downs. So many people don't have that. And what this poll shows us is that too many parents, too many families face huge barriers to accessing care for their their kids. And yes, it's about their ability to be able to engage in their jobs and support their families. But there's so many other benefits, too, that this poll highlights. Two-thirds and two-thirds of US families, both parents work. And so many of our kids are also being raised now by single-parent households as well. So it really is incumbent that we do a much better job in this country in helping them find the right care that fits their needs and care that's affordable. So there's a number of things we need to do to improve this situation. I know we'll get into some of those in the conversation. Yes, we need to close this information gap. Too many of us have no idea what quality looks like, but we also need to create the demand to build um, more opportunities and more options for people. You heard from Leroy and Erica that that's a common story. For so many of our families, we need to make sure that they have options that are flexible to fit their needs. That is much more common of a story than not in this country. And the last thing I'll say is that we just frankly need greater investment in all of our children, all of our families. Um, I really enjoy listening to John Pepper. He's the former CEO of Procter & Gamble. And he says that 90% of brain growth happens in the first five years of life. And during this time, we as a society invest 5% in high quality child care. I mean, what a disparity! So I'd love to get into a conversation about that and how we can create a shared norm, a shared value for all of our kids and families here. Thanks.
1: All right, thank you. Um, the second part of the forum uh, we'll turn to now. Uh, this is where we address the issues and talk about possible solutions and answer some of the questions that have been raised. Um, I want to turn back to Jillian first and. Um, Start with you. How how can the poll results? We've heard a little bit about how they're informing the conversation, but tell us more about how you think that they can help guide policy.
2: Sure. Well, I think um, the poll findings really support a lot of the um, pieces that my colleagues have been talking about. First and foremost, they really do suggest, um, in terms of the gap in information, that we need to be able to fill that gap. We need to be able to find them information that's relevant that supports them, not just in sort of selecting a child care center, as we said, because. They may, not, they may not have multiple options to select, um, but in providing them information about what it is they need to look for, what do they, they need to do to elevate and to have that conversation with their provider about what high-quality high care means for them in that context. Um, so um, that certainly speaks, to that, and I think my colleagues will be able to talk about some particular strategies for doing that. Um, and then, of course, the other two dimensions here in terms of access and, and accessing um, affordable high quality is really sort of central. And the findings speak to all these three intertwining, intertwining um, dimensions of, of the issue.
1: Right. Um, I have another clip. Um, I want to turn to that now. Um, it uh, shows an example of an innovative program in my home state, Oklahoma. Uh, Oklahoma was the second state in the. US. to offer free preschool for all four-year olds. Uh, and this video was produced by my colleagues on the education team at NPR.
3: My eyes are facing forward. I'm standing straight and tall. My hands are behind my back. I'm ready for the hall. Five,
0: four, three,
3: two, one. Zero, zero. This is their first experience in school for the most part. A lot of them have been in daycare or some sort of childcare setting, but then when they come to public school, it's just different. Can you take me to a party? Uh, sure. Can you drive? Yes. In my classroom, I use a project approach to learning, and I let the kids guide the curriculum. What do you think
4: of that idea? Good. Good.
3: I think that it's more important for the children to determine what the curriculum is so that they stay engaged. If they're not engaged, then I spend my day managing behavior versus letting them be able to discover and explore and construct their own knowledge of something.
5: Why do I put this picture on?
3: We spend a lot of time learning what patience is and waiting, because life is full of waiting. And so I draw their stick with their name on it, and then I ask them to tell me where they're going to play. Sean, where
0: would you like to play? I don't know. Where would you like to play? With these?
3: Okay that holds them accountable that is them saying I'm going to go play in the dough so they know they're gonna go to the sensory table and play in the dough that like they they've claimed that spot they're going there they have claimed their play (laughs)
1: Um, I can certainly I think it's a great I think it's great that uh, patience is being taught in preschool Um, I think we could teach it throughout life and adult learning too. anyway enough of my comments um, of course making child care affordable through programs like free preschool for four-year-olds is on, really on the leading edge of uh, trying to improve child care. Uh but all these things are intertwined, as Jillian said, um, affordability, access, and quality. Um, but let's go through and, and uh, talk to each of you about various aspects of this. And I'll start with affordability and turn to Susan. And um, let's talk about tax strategies. Can tax credits and other things um, help? What needs to be done?
5: Yeah, tax credits are an important financing strategy related to child care. Tax credits for parents make quality more affordable. Tax credits for providers, caregivers, teachers are like a wage supplement. And tax credits for businesses are an incentive to support quality child care. So tax credits could be, and you know, they are right now important, but they could be a significant um, player in improving quality and supporting access to quality. Right now, a lot of the tax provisions that we have related to child care benefit higher income working families rather than the lowest income working families, which limits their usefulness. Part of the reason for that is if you look at the federal child independent care tax credit, it's the model. Um, the benefit isn't refundable, which means if you don't owe taxes, you don't get it. The amount is capped at an unreasonable amount that doesn't relate to the college education cost of childcare for infants that Rachel pointed out. It's just it's unrealistic, and you can only get to 25, 20 to 35 percent of that cap. And then the credit isn't playing a role in terms of quality. It isn't linked to the quality of the center. And most of the states follow the federal example and mirror those provisions. But some states are giving a double credit for quality centers, for opting for quality. Um, and Some other states are really paving the way for what may be um, part of the financing sort of answer to some of the dilemmas. Louisiana has a school readiness tax credit, and they've had it since 2007. And it's a package of refundable income tax credits um, that are connected to their quality rating and improvement system. The parents get credits for uh, selecting a higher quality center that's in the Q- quality rating system. The child care provider gets credits. Um, and the range is you know, $750 to $1,500 per child um, who's in subsidized funded uh, child care or foster care. The directors and the staff in centers in the quality rating system get um, credits for educational qualifications and then businesses can get credits for supporting um, centers that are in the quality rating system. So other states have been looking at that, and what we do at BUILD is create a learning community where state leaders can share their strategies across borders. It is sort of sad that in 2016 we are this rudimentary, but the field related to women and children is underfunded in every way, and so Having a learning community in a way for innovations like Louisiana's to be shared across state borders and to help people problem solve together to sort of diffuse promising strategies and to put researchers and implementers together, both so that we all know the latest researcher research and the, the findings, but also so that the researchers have some reality testing and recognize that there are things going on out in the world that need to be looked at and maybe in a different way than they were before. Um, so I think, I think we're seeing a lot of potential for tax credits. Um, and you know, I hope that we'll see the federal administration look at how they could be something that, when the states emulate it, actually will help the lowest-income families who need the most support.
1: Uh, well, it comes to—it occurs to me while I'm listening to what you're saying that yes, it's—it's a—it's a noble goal and a desired goal to to increase. Uh, the affordability to low-income families, but I hear a lot of people in middle-class and upper-middle-class families complain about this, too. So are you saying that, uh, that we should restrict tax credits just to uh, families who need subsidies and perhaps uh, don't need um, tax? I- where, where, where do you draw the line? No, because we can't. I give... love my
5: double tax credit in Maine for choosing a quality center, and you know needed it. It's it's a huge cost, but the way it's structured right now, it's not that we're supporting everyone. There's actually a lack of support for the lowest income families. So we're sort of doing the exact reverse of what we should be doing. Um, I think many families of all kinds of incomes need support because the cost of quality is very high, and we need to create not just tax systems, but funding streams of all kinds so that we're investing in the success of families and families with young children and young children. They're our country's greatest uh, capital resource, our greatest human resource, and we're investing in remediation and we're investing in treatment. We're not investing in prevention and we're not investing in opportunity. So it's a it's a tremendous loss, Um, and you know I think financially, economically, and then obviously in terms of just uh, humanity, we're doing a disservice to our children and our society.
1: Rachel, I want to turn to you because uh, a couple of years ago uh, there was bipartisan support for reauthorizing the Child Care and Development Fund. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about where things stand with that?
4: Sure. I'd I'd really love to jump in here, um, because I think what Susan said is so true. Parents can't afford the cost of quality all the way up and down the income spectrum. It's especially an issue for our lowest-income families. And those are the children that research show may benefit the most from having the opportunity to participate in a high-quality program. So it's really an important thing for our society to take on. The Child Care and Development Fund is the largest source of federal funding. It goes to states, and states put their money in and partner to help pay for child care assistance for low-income families, families that... Um, are earning less than around, the maximum is, maximum is up to uh, 50000 for a family of four. Um, but currently, we're only serving about 15 percent of the eligible children around the country. And this program has a lot more it could do. And the good news is that, as you mentioned, in 2014, Congress took up this uh, legislation and reauthorized, reformed the child care program. Um, in a bipartisan manner with overwhelming support. And the reason was, in part, a lot of the brain research we've been talking about and a recognition that childcare makes a really big difference, not just as a work support, but also to help child development. And what Congress did is really set new foundational, basic requirements across the country for health and safety for childcare. And it may surprise you to know that those didn't exist before, that we didn't have a national standard for what basic health and safety training uh, providers should have or criminal background checks to occur. That was not the law of the land. It is now. And states have been working for the last couple years to come into compliance with that law. It's very exciting. We just uh, released in September a final rule implementing this new law. And we really see it as an opportunity to raise the bar um, not just for that basic foundation, right? You can't have quality if health and safety isn't there in these programs. So that is an amazing first step. But it also includes new new set-aside funds for investing and improving high quality um, in child care around the country that states can use. They can use it to improve the care for infants and toddlers. They can use it to help uh, child care staff, teachers get scholarships so they can go to school and uh, get degrees. We don't have national standards now for what type of education and training um, in terms of child development and things like that that uh, teachers need to have. This law and rule will require a basic level in health and safety understanding, things like CPR, first aid, um, medication administration, things you would want your child care uh, provider to know how to do for your child will now be the case, and that's a really important step forward. Um, Where we still need to look is fully funding um, what, what this program could do and what it's set up to do. Um, The president put forward a proposal for the last two years in his budget to expand access to child care assistance and really provide a guarantee for families with children who are infants and toddlers up to the age of four um, and for them to access higher quality care. And that means paying more per child for care, so that those uh, families who are part of this program can access more of the care in their community. And it will make a huge difference um, if parents have, uh, have more ability to choose across the spectrum, if they can afford higher levels. Um, there's some demand out there, we can tell from this survey. Parents want high quality. They want to be able to find and afford that type of care. We as a society and as a country need to take some steps to really help parents do what they know is right for their children and not make it so hard for them to do it, make it easier using these quality rating systems, but also making it so that um, in low-income communities where perhaps none of the parents can really pay the true cost of high quality, that's not what's driving the child care market, that there's other supports that are through this program and through other means that could make that care exist in that community. Because quality should be the same for all children, no matter what income, uh, no matter the name over the door, preschool, Head Start child care, we have been throwing around some different terms. Our vision is that all children have access to a similar level of high-quality care. And we're working very hard toward that vision here.
1: But I assume, like with all funding issues, that we'll have to now wait until uh, the next administration and the next Congress to, to get that through. But there has been some it. significant bipartisan support.
4: Yes, and that's what's so exciting about it. That's the good news. I think that um, we have seen some really strong support on both sides of the aisle for this issue. People get that it supports local economies in their districts, it supports their um, families, their constituents. It supports so many uh, of the children and families that um, people meet every day, that our our policymakers um, talk to, and they're hearing it, and they they want to do something better for our children and families. I believe that's true.
1: All right. Um, I want to move on. We need to to hit on a couple of other topics before we turn to your questions. Um, I want to talk about access for a few minutes and turn to Kristen. Um, from our poll, we know that not all families have <coughs> options in terms of location, care costs, other options. Um, talk to us more about that.
6: Yeah, I'll um, I'll pick up on some of Rachel's points. Um, and, and, and try to hit three main ones. We, we know that there are child care deserts in this country. Um, you've heard of food deserts. Same thing with child care options. That's what we're talking about here. Frankly, uh, very few options um, or none. We've heard some from the business community that they've moved into locations and actually have had to build that into their um, relocation plans. Um, The second big theme that Rachel's highlighting is there are many more kids eligible for um, Head Start and early Head Start in this country than are actually accessing it. Um, There are more families eligible for subsidies and other mechanisms to to pay for care or help pay for care than are accessing it. Why? Why is that? What are the difficulties and challenges with people even being aware of what they're entitled to? Um, We know that there are communities, and I think Susan will hit on some of this, where the private sector has come together with the public sector and said, we're going to do better and we're going to pull on, yes, the, the, the federal uh, mechanisms that we have, the state mechanisms, and we're going to put our own dollars in to making sure we're building better options for families at the local level. So we have some examples of that. We need, we need more of that. The last point I'll make, um, and we haven't hit on it yet, is the workforce. Um, the workforce in child care is among the lowest paid in this country. It is um, it's outrageous. Many of them qualify for public assistance themselves. Uh, we need to talk about that. We need to talk about how, yes, we need greater investment at the federal level, but we also need greater investment from the community on up. So I hope we get to that, too. Okay,
1: um, I want to talk a little bit about quality. Um, the, I, all, all of you can address this. Um, research has shown that investing in child care does pay off, and we've heard uh, some of the things today. Uh, some Especially the brain science um, benefits that Rachel was talking about. Um, but really, uh, what our, our poll found, and maybe Jillian, you can uh, address this, that parents really thought that childcare had a very positive impact on both um, both the child and themselves.
2: Absolutely. Um, and in fact, um, so first, exactly what you said, <clears throat> which is that the poll finds that. Uh, Parents think that childcare is good for the child, um, for their overall well-being, for their um, educational attainment and uh, cognitive development, um, for their um, a- emotional well-being, their physical development. Um, but it's actually not just today. So one of the things that um, you know, I didn't have a slide of this, but let me just have you imagine some of this um, really rich data, which is to say that when we talk about the long-term benefits of being in a high-quality childcare setting, um, parents are really in agreement that it has benefits for the child in terms of their later schooling, in terms of their um, you know uh, overall health and development. I mean, they this research that's been out there is making its way into the public sphere and is known. And so there's a demand for quality from parents. And so we see, for example, that it's one of the differentiating factors when they're looking at one provider versus another where they have a choice. They want high quality. Um, and so I think that you know, a key takeaway is that really there is demand there. Right now, they think they're getting it too, which is the trick from the, from the public perspective. Um, but there is a demand there that we hopefully can tap into and engage the public more meaningfully in this dialogue.
1: All right, I want to turn to your questions now. Uh, Let's go first to our online questions. And Lisa Merowitz is here to uh, give us our first online question.
0: Great. Thank you, everyone. We have people, a lot of questions coming in, a lot of people joining our live chat. Um, Let's start out with this question from Singapore. What can we learn? about from other countries with successful childcare policy programs and happy populations. Northern European countries like Denmark, Sweden, Finland, Singapore, Japan, any other country not on this list to improve our childcare.
6: Who wants to go first? (laughs) I think
1: you all would like to say something. (laughs) I can jump in
6: with a, 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 a headline. I think what you see in those countries is a common shared value for all kids right from the beginning. They understand implicitly how much early childhood matters to lifelong health and longevity and prosperity and productivity. Um, They understand the benefits to their country as a whole. um, And it really starts there. So right from the get go, the conversation um, has a different tenor. And investment across the board looks very different than it does here in the United States. And that's where we need to go.
1: Rachel, can I pose that question to you? Um...
4: Yeah, that's that's a really good question. And I think there's lots of reasons why countries have different policies. But one of the things that I am struck by when I look at these other countries is, There are emphasis also on the importance of um, women being having an opportunity to to participate in the labor force and not have to um, pull back on their careers or um, not enter the labor force at all when they have children, and to make sure that the system isn't hindering those choices and is actually enabling enabling a full choice. And it's also Um, uh, they often also offer paternity leave as well. So there is a a very important focus on helping uh, helping parents keep their career focus without having to choose their career or just the ability to put food on the table um, over their child's well-being and to make sure that that isn't a choice. It shouldn't be a choice any parent has to make. And I, and I do think that's one of the motivating factors when you look at these other countries. And we do see, when you look at the, the survey results also, that when the child is sick, who stays home, it's often, it's often the mom who has to stay home. It's really challenging to have young children and to stay committed and fully involved in your career when you don't have reliable child care. It's just it's stressful, and that's what our survey told us, and that's what that first clip told us. And um, you can, I think, the Oklahoma example, and what other countries tell us is that when um, you know a country makes a choice to. Put their resources um, on the line. You can fix this problem. Um, this can be something that we fix in our lifetimes. It's going to take a little bit of figuring and jiggering with our budget, but we could do it, and we could make uh, children and families' lives a lot less stressful around this country.
1: All right, we have a lot of questions. Let's go yeah, to the okay, next. Okay, let's one. do
0: another one. This is from a viewer in South Carolina. There are many children with no disability who have working parents with income levels above financial eligibility for Head Start. However, quality childcare, not including basic needs, clothes, private health insurance costs, et cetera, would be over 50% of one parent's monthly salary, especially in my state of South Carolina. What are ideas, plans, or programs do you think should be in place for families with children in the gap? Susan? I mean, I
5: think this is exactly mm-hmm. what we were you know, trying to address, that this cost issue is an issue that affects not just the poorest working families, but a whole wide array. And right now we have some strategies that meet some segments of some populations. Um, and we need to, I think, make the commitment and then find the dollars to actually pay for the cost of quality for all those who can't on their own. I think that's part of the tax credit push, but we need actual funding, um, you know massive support at the federal and state level to make it happen.
1: And I would just note that uh, both, camp- both the Clinton campaign – The Trump campaign and the Stein campaign have child care plans. Um, I wrote about this in a blog post yesterday on NPR.org, and I would refer people uh, to that if you want to learn more about what's being proposed this year. Uh, We didn't have time to go through all of the details here. Um, Lisa?
0: Thanks for pointing that out in this election year, mm-hmm. definitely. Um, I'll do one more here because we've had a number of questions about how to get subsidies and things like that. Um, is there a process for applying for subsidized child care? I work overnight. Can I get support for child care so that I can get rest during the day?
4: That's do you want a question? Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> that, yes, you can. Um, so the program that we administer, it's a, it's funding that goes to the states, and the states actually operate the child care subsidy programs that we've been talking about. So every state uh, provides their own system for accessing these types of services, usually in the Department of Human Services or in uh, the Department of Education in the state. But there are also very often something called child care resource and referral agencies in states, and they provide a wealth of information on how to find child care and um, can link you up with these other types of resources that we're talking about. Um, you can also go to our website, the um, ACF Office of Child Care website, and get links to, um, to information in uh, different places around the country. I think also there's a national website you should look at called Child Care Aware of America, which can help you find your child care resource and referral agency in your state.
1: And that website is, the ACF website is, do you know the address?
4: Uh, (laughs) I don't know it off the top of my head, I'm sorry. It's ACF, Office of Child Care. If you Google those things, you will end up um, coming to our website. But the Child Care Aware of America site will help you link to the resource and referral agencies, which I think is a good first step for anyone looking for child care.
1: Sorry, I put you on the spot there. (laughs) Lisa, do we want to take a question from the audience? Does anyone have a question here?
4: I have a couple of questions. Um, First of all, how, when parents are asked about quality and they express wanting high quality care, how are they defining that? And then secondly, when we're talking about child care, are we talking, is there an age range that we're talking about and how does that mesh with issues about parental leave?
1: Right, Right. We talked a little bit about that in the beginning, but Jillian?
2: Sure. So, um, in terms of the poll findings themselves, we asked about quality from multiple different facets. So, in some cases, we asked them, sort of, um, you know, how would you assess the quality of childcare? And I showed you those results. One thing I didn't show you is when we asked about um, what, why you're choosing one provider over another or why you're choosing one center over another. And there we saw that about 70% of parents cited something to do with quality. Mm-hmm. Now, there we have some insight about what they meant by quality. And they talk about things like, the nurturing relationship with the provider, their ability to provide fostering environment to support children's curiosity, to um, help them learn um, a lot of the kind of core dimensions that we subsequently then asked about in that. So parents really are talking about kind of the heart of some of this dimension of quality.
1: Great. Um, and another question from the audience.
0: Okay,
3: here we go. Hi, thank you very much. So besides voting in November, how can we put pressure on our legislatures or just in our communities to invest in
5: early
1: child care? Susan? I think for a long
5: time we've been afraid as a field um, and maybe as women predominantly to ask for the cost uh, for what we really need. Paid parental leave would be a huge um, assistance to the infant childcare problem. I think that um, that's a policy that many countries and some states in our country find makes sense, um, and not just for the woman, but for the uh, the father, if there is a father, you know, for any parent, um, any care adult for that child. Um, I think that, so we have to demand, I think, the investment, investment in the early childhood workforce, investment in children, the least amount of investment goes even in our education, just looking from an education perspective, the lowest investment is made in the years that have the highest impact in terms of brain development and learning. And we can do this through policy change. Legislators need to understand, we've done it before. Senior citizens used to be the poorest segment of our society in the United States. Now young children are the poorest age group in our society. So a policy shift like Social Security can change things. We can change all that. And a lot has changed in the last five to seven years. Now there are 20 states on the path to having deep infrastructure related to quality. And I think if we can keep pushing for the next federal administration, the next state administrations and our local officials too to think about all of the options to actually improve quality and serve young children and families that we can do it. So I think it's really speaking up and demanding what we need.
1: Kristen <laughs>
5: start talking about it
6: at your dinner table. Tell tell your, your your parents and your friends over Thanksgiving about what you heard today. Start educating yourself because we have a huge gap still. We're in an audience, I think, of um, like-minded folks who do understand the science. Not many people do yet. We still look at babies in this country from a certain vantage point. It's not well known yet. We need to start uh, talking to one another about this incredible time of life and just how important it is because the science is exploding and we haven't caught up yet. So I would just say, added to Susan's, just get get educated and start talking right, about start at it. Home. Yep.
1: All right. Um, I wanted to wrap up by asking each of our panelists for uh, uh, to identify or recommend a policy takeaway as a key message for. Uh, people who will watch this now and in the future. Uh, I think we kind of touched a little bit on that, but uh, <laughs> I'll start with you, Jillian. Do you have a policy takeaway for us? Sure.
2: Well, I think the, you know, my focus is, of course, on the public, on parents themselves and what they have to say. And this poll tells us that they see the benefits of childcare of high-quality, accessible, affordable child care for themselves, for their child, for their families, for their jobs, they see those benefits. And they're beginning to see a bit of that science um, in terms of the long-term benefits and the investment that you can make um, in very young children. And so the, the sort of policy takeaway is we have to now leverage that public demand through meaningful policy, keeping in mind that Parents um, feel like right now, for their immediate need, it's okay, but it's fragile, right? So their immediate high quality, you know, their immediate care is high quality. But what's the broader system, and how we can bring them into that conversation with that
5: sort of dual edge of of, of their involvement? All
1: right, great, Susan.
5: I've already mentioned some policy suggestions, I'm going to take one little second to say, I think we can't leave racial disparities and Mm -hmm. income disparities and disparities between people whose home language isn't English and those who it is. We can't leave those out of the conversation. Some people have different definitions of quality than the research currently says, and we need to learn and grow and understand that because quality in part might be seeing people who look like you, who share culture with you, and who understand your language, or at least who understand how to teach a dual language learner. So I think we have to raise the questions of what are these racial disparities about in uh, which children are thriving and who are being left behind. Um, And we need to figure out how to place our resources in ways that maximize the opportunities for all. But I think our our most important policies um, going forward are the needed investments, the investments in the programs, getting the programs into a quality framework, a quality rating and improvement system, and investments in the workforce so that we know that the adults who are caring for our children and educating our children Aren't you know stressed out and barely surviving, but are actually able to thrive themselves and share that joy of learning with the children?
1: Kristen?
6: I uh, ditto and ditto would add to this um, uh, a livable wage in this country that's an important part of this conversation and unequal pay. Um, because so many single moms are struggling to support their kids, um, we really need to close
4: that gap as well. So, would add to.
1: And Rachel, you get the final word.
4: Wow! And everyone has been so eloquent. Um, I would just say two things. One is, we've been all saying it: the true cost of high-quality care cannot be borne by parents. We have to recognize, as a society, as a country, that that's something we have to solve together. And the second one, I'm going to use that term you used so nicely childcare deserts. We have to really shore up the choices, particularly for our low income communities in rural areas. We need to provide the types of supports to make that high quality happen, no matter where you are in this country, so parents really do have equal access to high quality care for their children.
1: Well, thank you. Um, and I want to thank the forum for presenting this today. Um, it was a very stimulating conversation, as usual. I want to thank the staff, Lisa, Christina Roach, and all the people behind the scenes. And I particularly want to thank our panelists who um, came, um, came here and also joined us from Washington. Uh, the conversation is not over. You can continue the conversation on the forum website at forumhsph.org. And note that the next forum in this series is on domestic violence. It's called The Domestic Violence Crisis, Mobilizing the Public and Private Sectors. And that's on October 24th, again, at 12.30 PM Eastern Time. So thank you very much.
0: This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event And post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.